So coming now to where we're going to be in the Bible this morning, uh, if you want to head to the first scripture reference that we're going to make, it's going to be in Matthew 11. You heard Hannah read from Matthew 13, so if you went there, just a couple pages back, uh, a few millimeters, if you will, in your copy of God's Word, or just a couple of scrolls, we're in a series right now that's designed to help us understand how we, Christians, are becoming whoever it is that we're becoming. Hopefully you know by now, you're not static, you don't stay the same. As a being, all of life is about change, which is ironic because few things are more painful in human life than change, especially change that we didn't sign up for or change that we did not endorse. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, every day we change by degrees, bit by bit. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about how that works. And for those of us who want to follow Jesus, we want to take that change that we're living through, embrace it, understand it, and then leverage it. That we're not just becoming somebody, and we're certainly not just being formed by our culture and the world that we live in, but that those changes, those day-to-day differences from who we were yesterday to who we are today to who we'll be tomorrow, that those incremental degrees of difference actually move us closer to the image of Jesus. For those of us who want to follow him, we want to order our lives around three objectives. We want to belong to Jesus. That's the starting point for relationship. Choosing him, responding to his choice in your life, saying yes to God's plan and will for you. We want to behold him. We want a front row seat to what he's doing, what he's saying, where he goes in the Bible. And then we want to become like him as a result. In part by osmosis, in part by training, in part by intentional submission to the Spirit of God, in part by community, we over time grow into the image of Christ. So as we work through those things, we've addressed the last few weeks five factors of spiritual formation. If you're like me and you would say that you're not knocking it out of the park on any of those three every day, well, how do you make progress? How do you move forward? We believe that it comes down to five concepts. First is teaching, that the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the Bible runs counter to the stories that we believe in our culture. Next is practice. We believe that the intentional, planned out practices of the way of Jesus, what some people have called the spiritual disciplines, are integral to our ability Uh, to counteract the routines and the habits that are present in our lives. We believe that community, or what we've defined as the people we inherit from Jesus, runs counter to our natural tendency to just hang out with people who are like us and people who like us. (laughs) Sometimes the people who are in community don't, or they see things in us that they need to call out, and that can be challenging but is always fruitful. Where we were last week was our discussion of the Holy Spirit as one of the factors of the way that we are formed. And the Spirit becomes our present spiritual reality, the environment that we are in all the time. Uh, We said early on in this series, learning this lesson from Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, that we want to learn to practice the presence of God. We want to be wherever we are and also with God the Father. We want to be in the line to pick up our kids and in the Father's presence. We want to be at the laundromat and in the Father's presence, preparing dinner, doing the dishes, spending time before bed, meditating in Scripture. None of those things is necessarily any more spiritual than any of the others. That's one of the present realities of the kingdom of God, which is the fifth factor and where we will spend the majority of our time today, that there are present spiritual realities, that when Jesus began his teaching in the first chapter of Mark, he opened by saying, the kingdom of God is closer than ever. It's at hand, it has arrived, it is nearby. And often we live like that's not true, like it's still coming or we can't get there or we're just supposed to try to preserve as much of our morality as we can until we die and then sometime after our funeral we'll step into that kingdom. Whereas it seems that Jesus has a pretty different idea in mind. Last week we looked at the spirit as part of our formation paradigm. 
And because of time, because I'm long-winded, and you know that if you come to this church, uh, I had to cut the teaching off at about 80% of the way through. And I've had to do that occasionally at different times and places, but that whole sermon really was meant to function as one unit. And so I was able to take the time to try to tell you who the Spirit is, and then we spent a fair amount of time on what I called four false flags, or maybe false indications of the presence of the Spirit in others and us. But I never made it all the way to what the Spirit actually does, how He shows up, and what we can expect from Him. And so in conversation this week, hearing from a handful of you, it seemed important to go back and sort of rework my way through that. So what I want to do is just give you that last 20% of where we were going to go last week, and then we'll move today and spend the majority of our time on the fifth factor of spiritual dynamic spiritual formation, what we call spiritual realities. So this is an analogy. If you're not an artistic person, if you don't think in pictures the way that I do, I almost constantly see things in sort of these analogies in my head, and it can be helpful, but it can also be very confusing because my wife will ask me a simple yes or no question, and instead of saying yes or no, I'll tell a story about what it would be like if two different breeds of dog wound up in the same competition in England at the same period of time. How would that have changed the trajectory? of? I mean, truly, I'll drag stuff in that has nothing to do, and especially after 10 p.m. After 10 p.m., Simple questions like, would you move the laundry, turn into these deep moral and theological treatises, almost verbal blog posts about what even is laundry and where did it come from and should we wear clothes? Would we have worn clothes? Anyway, so just know that. I think in pictures, if this helps you, great. If it doesn't, it'll take about 10 minutes and then we'll get back to the part maybe that you enjoy. When I think about following Jesus, the best analogy that I can come up with is a dance, something musical something that has layers, something that has depth, something that involves lots of different voices or instruments. You're probably familiar enough with the New Testament that you know that the most common analogy given for the body of Christ is a literal human body, eyes and ears, feet and hands. I think that translates well into the realm of instrumentation as well, that we're all playing a different tune, but there's this symphonic idea that God has where if we would all get on the same sheet of music, something beautiful and far more powerful and moving and significant would be produced than anything that you and I could do on our own by playing a little solo in the corner that goes against what it is that God has intention for our lives. I think of following Jesus as beautiful music that swells, that builds, but also changes with time. Sometimes it's soft and it's light, other times it's heavy and fast, but I think that following Jesus is always changing. It's a dance that transforms us as we train ourselves to try to stay in step with the music, with the conductor, our Lord. We have highs, we have lows. There are certainly times of spiritual feast and spiritual famine, categories that the Bible is more than comfortable with. But these movements in a symphony take us a lifetime to navigate. So here's why I'm laying that out to you that way, because I think if our spiritual formation journey, if following Jesus is music, the way the Spirit shows up is best understood in three broad musical Categories, And I hope that this will help you because I'm trying to relay sort of three significant roles that the Spirit plays, but also wrap in the way that we experience Him in a way that's not heretical and doesn't compromise the truth of Scripture. So the first is this. Oftentimes the Spirit breaks into our lives as melody. By melody, what I mean is the loudest, clearest, most prominent voice in the midst of our lives. So three ways that that tends to happen. One is what I would call breakthrough. You may have experienced this before. Oftentimes when the Spirit is at work in us, there's a moment where we can put our finger on it and we know 10 minutes ago I was different from my, how I am now. 10 minutes ago I was in bondage to sin, 10 minutes ago I was scared of an abuser, 10 minutes ago I was worried about what my culture would say about my faith and something by the power of the Spirit has shifted in me and I feel right now like I'll never go back. I feel like God has set me free, he's delivered me in some sense, 
and I'm going to keep moving forward as a new person. Musically, this is a new song emerging from maybe the repetitive song that we feel that we've been stuck in for weeks or months or years. Over the swell of the symphony, we hear a new melody emerging, and suddenly the rest of the instruments begin to work together in a way that communicates this is the new direction of the song of our spiritual formation. Prophecy, to me, falls under this uh, category as well. Prophecy, what I mean by that, is an unexpected insight. The perfect note at the perfect time in the symphony, a solo that somehow draws out the other instruments and then works them back together into a more full and more easily discernible song. Oftentimes the addition of a note or a tune or a melody that somehow helps what felt like chaos moments before fall into place and we go, oh, that's what God's been doing all this time. Or revelation, an idea finally becoming a reality, being familiar enough with the sheet music, if you will, that we understand what we're supposed to expect, but it just hasn't happened yet. And then suddenly it does. An idea, a concept, a hope, a dream, something rooted in scripture that we've been hoping God would do, it swells. The faintest hints of a key change turn into an entirely new musical movement without us realizing until suddenly we find ourselves humming along to a new tune. And we go, oh, this is what the spirit was doing in me. I'm not angry like I used to be. I've learned to confess and repent in a way that I've always hoped I would, but I just never could break through that, and though I thought it would be war to make it happen, it just sort of happened. It's been revealed to me. The second category of the way that the Spirit works is harmony. So melody would be the Spirit taking the song a new direction and being in the driver's seat. Harmony to me is where the Spirit comes alongside what we're already doing and makes changes that we've hoped for or prayed for for a long time. These are less dramatic than the sort of breakthrough moments that come in the melodic category. One example of this would be healing. When a prayer has been prayed again and again, when the tune and the melody of our own spiritual experience has been going to God and saying, God, we need this. We're longing for you to do this. None of us can do this. And then suddenly the Spirit works with our expressed will to mend a wound or to reverse the effects of age or injury or sickness. This is the spirit harmonizing with the will that we already have because we're seeking the good of each other as followers of Jesus. Deliverance is an example of this, where a person has been stuck in oppression for a long time, hoping, seeking, wondering, will God arrive? Will he do something? I think of the Israelites in Egypt crying out to whatever gods might be listening, and the God of Israel hears and answers and makes a way. Triumphantly, dissonance in the song is removed, taken out of our formation as we feel the relief of the return of that harmony with the Spirit. Maybe we've been kept apart from the church or from God's word or from our sense of who God is by an oppressor in our lives that's beat us down, and that harmony rises to the surface as God delivers us. And then justice would be the last example from this category, when a wrong is made right. A sort of lost melody is restored. The chaos of poor tuning is removed and standards that have been ignored or abused in the song are now restored. The beauty of what was always waiting just below the surface erupts out of the disconnected instruments all competing to be loudest or to overwhelm each other. Order is restored and a song emerges from what was only noise before. It's beautiful the way the Spirit will work all of our hard-heartedness and hard-headedness together into something that he can use. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament, the very end of Genesis, is a great example of this. The Spirit is constantly harmonizing. God is working in the midst of and in spite of the great damage that people intend. And at the end, the good that God brings about is better. Better than what would have happened if all of the people would have done everything right. God uses them in spite of their wickedness. Finally, we have 
rhythm. The Spirit is present in the rhythms of our formation. These are the kinds of things that you've already heard me speak about at length, so I'll keep this part short, but these are the things that we participate in. These are the low and slow rhythms, tempos of our lives that bring us into partnership with the Spirit. One is teaching, sustained, chronological teaching, consistent teaching over time, continuing to show up, continuing to listen, continuing to internalize and ingest what we know to be true, even if it doesn't seem like it's doing anything right away. Practice, the drumbeat of our mornings and our evenings, the rhythmic anchor of our affections, the things that drive what we love. And then finally, our community. Who sets our pace? All the other instruments in the symphony that we're trying to stay in step with, all of us attempting to follow the conductor, but we may sometimes rely on other instruments in our section to help us stay in sync with the larger musical movement around us. When I was in uh, junior high and the very beginning of high school, I played saxophone. Me and Bill Clinton had that in common. That's all we have in common. But that's uh, my little claim to fame, saxophone. I could still maybe play it, I don't know. And there were times where there was this one really talented musician in our group who was wildly successful in jazz band. He could riff, uh, he could make stuff up, he had this great ear for tone and sound. I don't even know if he knew how to read music. He could just listen and then kind of figure it out on his own, fight his way through it, and then he would be good. But he had no sense of rhythm or tempo, which was fine in jazz band because he was leading. And so all the other instruments just had to speed up and slow down to stay with him. But when we were in concert band all sitting together, even though he was the first chair, the lead saxophone in our section, he would be watching out of the side of his eye, whoever was next to him, watching their foot on the ground. Because he didn't know. He couldn't keep in step. And so just an example of how a person can be very gifted, a person can be very talented, if you follow my analogy, but without all of these things in play at one time, it's very likely that we'll slowly start to go our own direction, play our own tune, champion the things that we think are best, instead of submitting to the Spirit. So that's relatively all-inclusive, and I think it's significant for you to understand those false flags are good. If you didn't hear last week's sermon, go back and listen to it. We don't want to settle for any of those four things, but it's this sort of constant, immersive presence of the Spirit. It's the only thing that gives us any hope of going against the grain of our environment. This music that we carry with us everywhere that we go is the thing that will shape us in spite of the world that we live in. When the Spirit arrives in our lives, we begin to enter into a new kind of reality, the Spirit is himself a new inner reality for us. He counters our physical environment. He counters our culture. He counters Western values. To some extent, he even counters our digital lives. But, and this is the segue into the fifth factor of our formation, there is much more of God and his rule for us if we believe the teachings of Jesus. The Spirit was present in the Old Testament. God would send his spirit at times in certain places to lead individuals who had major roles to play in human history or at least the history of Israel. But according to Jesus at the end of his ministry, the spirit was coming now for all who would believe. So he's the beginning. He's sort of the introduction to, you can think of him, uh, though this is not all that he does, as sort of the mater d' at the new restaurant in town, waiting to meet you and learn your name and lead you into a new place you've never been and expose you to things you've never seen before. That's his job, and he goes with us along the way. But he's the beginning of what we might call new spiritual realities. That's the fifth factor of our dynamic spiritual formation. What I mean by that is it's the ways that the rules of human life changed when Jesus arrived. When Jesus set foot on the planet, especially in his 30s when he began his ministry and he started to teach and explain the sort of upside-down nature of how the world works versus how God's kingdom is meant to function, 
all kinds of new principles were introduced into life that, frankly, even 2,000 years of study later, we're not very good at putting these things into practice. We still don't totally get it. His disciples didn't get it while they walked the earth with him. Many different versions of the church in history have gotten off by varying degrees, and that's eventually put them in the camps of heresy or cults or all kinds of other things. We have to work hard. We have to train ourselves to truly understand that when Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near, something has changed. Something significant is different. That kingdom came with Jesus when he arrived. And you and I don't use the word kingdom a lot. It's an old word to most of us. We have a few kingdoms left on earth, but the majority of them are just sort of symbolic figureheads. Um, Most all governments have chosen democracy, but Jesus seems to think that kingdom is a helpful analogy for what it means for God to be ruling and reigning in our lives and us to be submitting to him the right way. We can define kingdom as this, and this is the, the... Definition I'll use for the rest of our time together this morning. Kingdom is the range of the effective will of the one in charge. The range, so how far you can reach, of the effective will of you actually exerting your will, not your hopes, not your dreams, not just what you wish would happen, but the things that you bring about because you exist. And it relies on you having the authority to do any of that. Your will is not effective unless you have authority behind it. So the kingdom is the effective will of the one in charge, the range of that. So for instance, for you, your kingdom would be the range of your own effective will. In other words, your kingdom on earth is all of the people and the places and the things that you can affect. It's your closest friends, it's your family, some of your co-workers, and of course, even your own self. And then to counter that idea, God's kingdom which arrives with Jesus in the opening verses of the Gospels, God's kingdom can be understood as the range of his effective will. God's kingdom is where what he wants to get done gets done, in other words. And the reason I'm sort of philosophically hitting these concepts to open today is because I want you to understand God's kingdom is not, and this is according to Jesus, God's kingdom is not a place on earth. It's not a country, it's not a nation, it's not a region, it's not a continent. It's not even our planet collectively. It is the range of God's effective will. That means that God's kingdom was not just Israel in 30 AD when Jesus died. God's kingdom was not Rome in 323 when Constantinople made Christianity the standard religion of the whole Roman Empire. God's kingdom was not France or Germany in 1517 when the Protestant Reformation broke out. Nor is God's kingdom the United States of America or whatever other nation you would consider home if you're a guest today. His kingdom is not a place defined by a flag. It's not a place defined by policies or borders or even values or an economy or language or ethnicity. It can be parts of all of those things. This is why God's kingdom is so much more effective than any kingdom that you and I could ever found. We are limited by the physical. We can only go so far. We can only convince so many people. We can only unite so many folks around one idea or concept. God can permeate and penetrate all people everywhere because his kingdom is different from the kingdoms that we create and build. His kingdom is also not what we call heaven, though much of the evangelical movement of the last hundred years has centered around people making decisions based on a hope to be with God in heaven someday later. But I've found, and I think you probably have too, that in the late modern world that we live in, the sort of revivalist message of just hang on until you get to heaven, it's falling on deaf ears. It's not working, just like it didn't work in the early church. The early church grew because people saw the product of following Jesus. Dallas Willard said this about revivalism and decisionism in the evangelical movement. He asked the question, does Jesus only enable me to make the cut when I die? Or to know what to protest or how to vote or agitate and organize? 
It is good to know that when I die, all will be well, but is there any good news for life? And then I love this. He said, if I had to choose, I would rather have a car that runs than good insurance on one that doesn't. I think that is a fair indictment of what we call Christian living in many times and many places. If we think Jesus only came to get us to heaven, then we've missed the point. Not just the point for those of us who want to follow Jesus, but the point for a world that is lost and in 2022 is wandering down the wide path of humanism. A Jesus who has nothing to do with how life is lived on this side of eternity is not a Jesus we should expect many people to take seriously. But this is not really a new concept. The entire Bible understands the rule of God to be a present reality in some sense, but that reality becomes concrete, physical, tangible, knowable when Jesus shows up, the person and teaching of Jesus. Jesus used his cousin, John the Baptizer, to illustrate how the way to live in God's kingdom dramatically changed with his arrival in Matthew 11 and again in Luke 16. So I want to read with you from Matthew chapter 11. We'll look at verse 11 first. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, he's speaking to his disciples and a few uh, Pharisees who were standing around as well. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, so human beings, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So that's important. No one has ever been greater than John the Baptist in all of human history. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. That's hard to understand. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, so roughly the last 15 or 20 years at the time that Jesus is saying that, in this last couple of decades, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent, violent people now take the kingdom by force. For all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah who is, or you can read it as, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus' cousin John was as great as any human being. All your heroes of the Bible that you know, Abraham, David, Moses, Noah, Certainly any human leader in that era, in that time period, any of the great kings of Persia or Assyria who show up at different points in the books of prophecy or the books of kings, Jesus says, of people on earth, this man John, who wore dirty clothes and lived outside and ate whatever bugs he could catch, he was the greatest. He's the pinnacle of humanity. And yet, that's not even the point. That's just sort of the presupposition that we need to accept, which is by itself sort of mind-blowing. The point is, the least... The bottom person on the ladder of hierarchy, if there even is such a thing in the kingdom of God, sits at least one notch higher than John. Now hear me, church, that's not an indictment of John the Baptist. That is about as high a praise and promotion and endorsement of the power of the gospel of Jesus as anything else can be. This is the reason that when the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, he regularly considers himself very, very low on the totem pole. He'll say, if I'm the chief of anything, it's sinners. If I'm at the top of any hierarchy in God's kingdom, it's that I needed the most grace and mercy. I was as far from God as any of you were, because we need the expressed mercy of Jesus. The grace, what he purchased for us on the cross, what we sang about earlier this morning, we need that to move from just being people who want to achieve and attain what John the Baptist had and everybody before him in the Old Testament to people whose lives are built and founded on grace, who are actually welcomed into the kingdom of God. 
In God's economy, and this is the point I think that Jesus is making, John was rich, sure, but he was still stuck, if you will, in the Old Testament way of life. That's what Jesus means when he references the law and the prophets uh, in Luke 16, which is where we're going to go next. He also talks about it in verse 13 of what we just read, that, that they were some version of helpful, that they did something for God's people and God's kingdom, but that they were not the whole picture and that they are not God's ultimate long-term plan for his people. The good that was in John was rooted in the laws and prophecies of the Israelite people. The rule and reign of God in John's life was limited, therefore, to the ordinances and traditions of the Old Testament. In Matthew 11, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God used to be a structured and defined concept that existed based on your ability to conform your way of life to the laws of the Old Testament and to the teachings of the prophets. And John was awesome at that. He nailed it. He did a great job. However, now, Jesus says, something has changed. Now the rule of God is present in the person of Jesus. And the rule of God, what we defined earlier as the range of God's effective will, now it's made manifest in Jesus, and that means it's available for not, all, not just all people. It is available for all people, but it's relevant to all of life. Maybe I'm not being clear. Let me clarify what I'm saying here. The law as people received it from God in the Old Testament. You remember that we worked through this at the end of Exodus. Maybe you've blacked that part of your memory out, right? Because it was boring and you didn't like it. I don't know. But as we worked through those laws, we tried to understand the principles that were in play. However, no matter how good we are at that as New Testament Christians, a lot of the law just doesn't apply to us directly. You and I don't have cattle that jump fences and gore our neighbor's sheep, and we don't need to know how God would have us weigh in on that and how many shekels of silver a sheep is owed if our cow only tore off one of its legs instead of all four of its legs. Like We don't need that, really. We don't live in that world. What John has done is taken all of the sacrificial laws, all of the cultural laws, and all of the personal laws, and he's done his best to live submitted to them. And what he's realized is what many of the prophets and many of the great teachers in Israel missed, including the ones who still teach and still rule in Jesus' day, that the sum of those laws is not just to try to prove to God that you're good enough. It's getting you ready for what is coming. This is why John is the new Elijah. That's what Jesus is saying. He's the one who comes before the Messiah to announce the Messiah's arrival and to prepare the way for him. And yet, even someone with that large of a role to play on the stage of human history is limited in his ability to know God because God has not given an exhaustive, an exhaustive law. He hasn't tried to. There's nothing in your Bible about a cell phone, right? Maybe you don't know that. Keep looking. If you find it, let me know. I haven't seen it yet. I don't think it's in there, especially if you read the Old Testament. The Bible isn't going to weigh in specifically on how many hours a week your kids should have tablet time. The Bible isn't going to tell you which multivitamins are best. The Bible isn't going to necessarily explicitly command you to do certain things in your car or when to go to the grocery store or how best to vote in a civil election. There are principles in play, sure. I'm not saying the Old Testament is irrelevant. Don't misunderstand me. But the nature of the Old Testament law is limited to the culture of the people who received it. That was good and right of God to do. If God had given Old Testament Israelites laws about cell phones, they wouldn't have taken them seriously. They would have gone, we don't even have those words. I don't even know what that concept is. They don't even write letters yet. I mean, cell phone is seven or eight generations past that level of communication. It would be ridiculous, right? So we can't go to the Old Testament law and expect it to speak to every facet of our lives. But when Jesus arrives, he does that. Jesus does speak to every facet of your life. If the limited nature of the Old Testament law is not jumping off the page to you, hear this from one of the most famous psalms in the Bible. This is Psalm 119. 
The songwriter says this. He says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep God's testimonies. They seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Same thing as the law. You, God, have commanded your precepts, same thing as the law, to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, another synonym for law. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments, another synonym for law. The psalmist had a good thesaurus because he could have said law over and over and over and over again in here. The songwriter is clinging to God's law. This is true for most of the psalms in the Old Testament because it's all he has. If you pay careful attention to the language of Psalm 119, which is too long for me to read to you today, you will see that the hope that the songwriter has is not in the law itself, it's in God who gave the law. In other words, the songwriter sees the law as a love letter, but never communicates about the law as if it is sufficient to reveal all of God to him. And the law continues to be an external metric against which to hold up one's life. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3. In verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. As good as the law may be, the best thing it can do for you is convince you that you're wrong, but it can't solve that problem for you. So for anybody in the Old Testament era, of which John the Baptist is the last person, The only hope that they really have is that God will save them somehow, but they don't know how that's going to work. The law tells them that God is there. The law says God has a plan. The law communicates God is loving. He is just. He can do what he says, but the law itself is not a comfort to the soul. The law itself does not meet the needs of the inner person. When Jesus arrives, he does. This is why Jesus will say more than one time in the Gospels, he's not here to eliminate the law. He's here to fulfill it to fill it fully, to do what the law by its very nature cannot do, which is the thesis of the entire book of Romans, if you haven't read that lately. The law on its own is good, but it doesn't get us across the finish line. We need some new way to live into God's kingdom that's no longer reliant on our ability to check all the religious boxes and be academically rigorous and memorize and repeat the Old Testament law to the point that we somehow muscle it into our lives. If you recall, we read from the Apostle Paul last week where he discussed that now the way the law enters in is the very nature of God is written not on tablets of stone but tablets of flesh on our hearts and it's written in the ink of the Spirit of God. That's a big, 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 big difference. That is groundbreaking. Maybe you don't understand. This is part of why the Pharisees killed Jesus because this is huge to them. You and I sort of think it's apples and oranges. It's not that big of a deal. But to go from a system where for thousands of years every political and national hero you have ever had has done everything in their power to both work out God's law for themselves and convince you that you should do that, and now a new guy is showing up claiming to be God, which by itself is incomprehensible for the people around him. But then he says, it's not the letter of the law, it's the heart of the law. The very thing that the psalmist never quite gets to, the very thing that again and again in the Old Testament, people get really close and they fall short. They never quite get it. It never clicks for them, the character and the nature of God. And now Jesus is saying it's him and he's here for everybody. That's a very different kind of kingdom. Here's my concern, church. My concern is that New Testament churches are still living in Old Testament law. I think that. I've gone to many of them. I have sat under teaching that was designed to convince me to be obedient or else. 
I have been a part of small groups that were designed to motivate me by guilt and shame. I have sat across from people who swore to me that they loved me, and then every word they had to say was beating me down, telling me I'd never be good enough, attacking any effort at all that I had ever shown to follow Jesus, laughing at my silly misunderstandings about doctrine and theology. That's the lifestyle of a Pharisee. It's in your Bible. It happens again and again and again. And when Jesus arrives, he says there is a new kingdom. There's no longer a hierarchy to climb. There's no longer millions of laws to try to keep. You can be transformed from the inside out, not the outside in like you've been trying to do all this time. Think of the psalmist again. It's great that he wants to obey, but he's as hopeless as anybody before Jesus because he cannot by nature do what he longs to do. But imagine this, and this is the moment that we're looking at when Jesus is teaching about John the Baptist. Imagine if the psalmist got to follow Jesus. If he became an apprentice of the Christ. He would no longer have to try to massage God's law into his head and heart by memorization and repetition day and night. God would instead write his very nature on the singer's heart. And that would be better. And that's what Jesus came to give, you and I. That's a big part of understanding the kingdom of God made real, made present for us. Following Jesus is now open to anybody who wants to follow. No more law-keeping, no more academic rigor, no more strict religious practice required. Now, anybody who wants to come into God's kingdom can come in. Even if they limp and stumble on their way, they can come in. Now the eternal kingdom of heaven is here, and it is here for everybody who wants to follow. And according to Jesus, a lot of people want to follow people who would have never gotten close if their only hope was law-keeping and academic rigor and strict religious practice. Later today, go look at Luke 16. I don't have time to read it to you this morning, but take a look at that couple of verses where Jesus talks about how uh, now the kingdom of God has been blown open, the doors have been blown off, and people are attacking each other to climb over top of one another to get in because the way in is different than it used to be. I think of Black Friday when I read those verses. I mean, just people on top of people to get to the kingdom. And that's new. That's different. It's ravenous for those of us who gain that appetite. But nothing that I've said to you so far today really matters unless it becomes concrete, right? This is a lot of theory. You're going, okay, this is great. I didn't really live in the Old Testament times. I'm not really sure why we need to understand who John the Baptist was or how things have changed. So I'll just give you an example from Jesus' life. Luke chapter 7, if you can go there in your Bible. This is a great story, a dinner party that Jesus went to where things changed fast for the people who invited him over. They were not expecting the way that things went. Eventually, we'll read in verse 44, so that may be a page turn for you, Luke 7, but I want to work our way there real quickly and kind of summarize the story so far for you. In Luke 7, Jesus was invited to a dinner party. This happens frequently in his ministry, especially the early part of his ministry, because people don't realize uh, how countercultural he is yet and how kind of willing to embarrass people who are wrong he is if they insist on being embarrassed. And so this dinner party that starts really cordial ends up becoming this great example of how the kingdom of heaven, the gates have been blown open wide, and at the same time, how far out of their way religious people will go to avoid those gates. So Jesus had been in Capernaum ministering to the sick. He'd been teaching for several days, and he was invited by a guy named Simon to a dinner party. And all you need to know about Simon is he's a major player in the political world. He's a big deal in Capernaum. During dinner, a well-known female sex worker came into dinner, came inside the house, and she walked up behind Jesus while he's reclining at the table to eat. And as Jesus continued to eat, as he and Simon continued to speak to one another and the other guests, the woman got down on the floor and she began to wash Jesus' feet. And she started weeping, weeping with gratitude, grateful to put her hands 
on this man, Jesus, to have the opportunity. I believe that she was well aware of the gospel that he preached. That's what brought her to that house in the first place, is knowing who this man was and what he was willing to do for sinners like her. I believe that she believed that the kingdom of God was nearby for people who would never have been able to approach the kingdom by way of the law and religion. This is why this new kingdom is good news. There is no way in for this woman unless Jesus brings the way to her. Jesus' teaching had spread like wildfire through the Judean countryside, and this woman had certainly heard that Jesus loved sinners. She had certainly heard that his heavenly Father loved and forgave women just like her. And we don't know where she came from, we don't know what she was doing right before this, but her emotional state tells me that she was moved by conviction and faith. She was single-minded. She knew what she was there to do, she knew what she needed to do to respond and to thank this man, Jesus, for his ministry and the grace of his gospel. And then Luke gives us insight. As all of this is happening, Jesus is reclining, the woman is washing Jesus' feet, she's weeping. I've never cried enough to wash anything in my life, so this is big, right? Big feelings, big emotions. Simon, the politician, sitting across from Jesus, is having this inner monologue. And Luke is insightful. I'm sure Jesus told the disciples later what Simon was thinking, because they can't read minds like he can. When Simon sees the woman kneel down and begin to wash and rub Jesus' feet... Simon, who's very well-versed in navigating social situations, tries to diffuse the rising tension in the room. He's like, this is getting weird. This is not the dinner party that I thought I was going to have tonight. I'm not scoring all the points that I thought I was going to score. And then he begins to think to himself, Jesus must not know that this woman is a sex worker. He's new in town, right? How would he know her reputation? All the men in the room know who she is, and you can do with that what you want. But surely a rabbi like Jesus, a person with such widespread name recognition, a rising star in the Hebrew world, Surely he would never associate with a woman like this if he knew what she was. And that proved to Simon that Jesus must not have the special anointing that everybody thought. Simon thinks to himself, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know who is touching his feet. He would never allow himself to be made filthy by the hands of a sex worker. You see, Simon didn't understand the new kingdom. He had no concept. In his world, in the old kingdom mindset, you would never associate with a person who could bring your moral point load down. You would never touch a person. You would never let a person touch you who could compromise your standing in the kingdom of God. What he doesn't understand is Jesus can't be compromised. Jesus is bringing the kingdom to her. Her touching him has nothing to do with Jesus standing in the kingdom. But Jesus did know who she was, and he knew what Simon was thinking. And so Jesus answered Simon's thoughts, one of the most chilling moments in the whole Bible. Jesus said to Simon and his guests and the woman at his feet, he said, I want to tell you a story about a private investor, a man who invested $50,000 into one person and $5,000 into another. And when the payments were due, neither person could pay, neither the 50 nor the five. And so the investor wrote off his losses and he forgave both debts. Then Jesus asks Simon a question. He says, Simon, of those two people in this theoretical situation, who, who would appreciate the investor more? The person who was forgiven $5,000 of debt or the one forgiven 50000 And Simon gave the obvious answer, the one that all of you were thinking. He said, yeah, the one who owed more. Now, what's interesting about this is Simon is admitting that he does, in fact, understand the difference between someone who owes a lot and someone who owes a little, which is important for the point that Jesus will make next. Jesus leveraged that admission, and he spoke to Simon and the woman all about the concrete reality of the present kingdom of God. Jesus does this in Luke 7, 44. Jesus turned toward the woman, so he turns his body around backwards, away from Simon, but he speaks to Simon. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? 
which is itself a little bit of a uh, wild question to ask somebody who's sitting in the same room, right? I mean, there's an inference here that something's not right. Simon, do you see this woman? Before Simon even has a chance to answer, Jesus goes on, he says, I came into your house, Simon. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and she's wiped them off with her own hair. Simon, you gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment, and therefore I tell you, Simon, I tell you that her sins, which are many, so you're right, Simon, and I do know who I'm dealing with here, I tell you, Simon, that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Why? For she loved much. That's new, you guys. I don't know if you know that's new. That's new. That's a new way to get into the kingdom of God. That has never happened before. For she loved much. But Simon, he who is forgiven little, loves little. Simon, who could I be talking about, Simon? And then he said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And those who were sitting at the table with him at this nice political dinner party began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he turned back to the woman, continuing to see her when no one else will. And he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So why are sins forgiven in the kingdom of God, in this new kingdom of Jesus? Is it because the right prayers were recited by this woman? Were her Jewish incantations so razor sharp and heartfelt that God had no choice but to meet her there? No, was it because she pledged her unwavering allegiance to God? She swore she would never sin again. No. The sex worker at Simon's house was forgiven and set free because she loved Jesus. God's rule over her, the range of his effective will, meant that she was now within his kingdom, and therefore she belonged to him alone. She was now his to judge or not. He no longer needed Pharisees, priests, anybody else to intercede. He, in the person of Jesus alone, went to her personally and dealt with what she needed to be dealt with and set her free once and for all, and that is new. And her love for him, her faith in his mercy, was her entry into the nearby kingdom of God. The woman saw Jesus and understood that he was both God and man. She could see this was the son of David, the son of man, the son of God, the person she had spent her whole life looking for. And you can think of all the places that she had gone looking because of what her career was. And yet here she found him, and he took her seriously, and he wanted nothing from her, probably for the first time, of any relationship she had ever had since she was a child. He simply said to a man who was ready to dismiss her and dismiss Jesus by extension, can you even see her? Simon, do your eyes work, Simon? Because this is unbelievable to me, what we're sitting in the middle of right now. And that is new. That is the arrival of a new kingdom where people's humanity is restored to them, where people's dignity is returned to them, where they are taken seriously regardless of how many sins they carry in their backpack, right? Jesus said, you're right, Simon, her sins are many. But you know who they belong to now? You know who is now within the range of my effective will? It's her. She's not hers anymore. And she's not yours to do with what you want. She's mine. My kingdom has come. It's her. It's here. It's for any of you. And as Jesus swings those gates wide, Simon and all of his guests go all the way out of their way to never step foot in that kingdom. And that's what religious people will do every time. They want their system, they want their trophies, they want the recognition of other people, they want their money, and they don't want grace. And yet Jesus says, all I have for you is mercy. 
And if you'll come to me, I'll fix it. In that moment where Jesus saw her, she knew him. She knew that he was loving. She knew that he was accepting her before he ever said so because she looked at him, because his kingdom had come. She knew because she saw in him the goodness of God that did not need to be proven or explained. It simply called for her love, and she answered that call. That's it. When that happens, when you and I see Jesus for who he really is, we have a choice. In that moment, we have a choice. We can either follow him or we can turn our backs on him. And you can see how the rest of the dinner party goes. One person is all in. The rest of the guests don't have a category for this mercy and grace and not earning your way in. And so they just sort of reject Jesus and write him off. And very shortly after this, decide that they're going to have to kill him because he's really causing a lot of trouble for how things have been. But if we choose Jesus... If we begin a life built on the present rule of God on earth, then we'll realize as we live it that we've, we've gained everything. We've really lost nothing to do so. That woman who came in that day didn't need the respect of those other Pharisees. She wasn't trying to earn their favor. She'd been spending her life doing the only thing that anybody ever really told her she was any good at, just trying to make ends meet. And she found in Jesus meaning and purpose that she would never squeeze or wring out of any religious system or anything else another person could give to her. That life, built on the present reality of God's active rule and reign through the person of Jesus, that life is worth trading everything for. Jesus said so in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure that's been hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, joy is important, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. My friends, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of restoration, is worth more than all the world put together. This is why the present reality of the kingdom of God, the spiritual reality of God's kingdom come near, runs counter to your experiences. Because Jesus can heal where you came from. Jesus can fix what your parents did. Jesus can fix what your grandparents did to your parents so that your parents did that awful stuff to you. Jesus can step in when your parents have only ever stepped away. Jesus can forgive where all the people that are in your life simply want you to perform and get better and do more and go faster. Jesus says, stop and be. Just be, just be with me. This is why this is a treasure to us, and oftentimes we treat teaching like a treasure. A lot of us are amped up right now about practice. We're experimenting with prayer and silence and solitude. Some of us have had conviction the last couple of weeks to go deeper in community. None of that is wrong, but none of that matters without the kingdom of God that is here. Otherwise, all we're doing is rebuilding a religious system based on Jesus' teaching. What we want to do is live into his actual teaching. I want to be a person who is so convinced that this is the way that the economy of God functions that I begin to see people that I never saw before. I want to be able to say to Simons in my life, do you see her? Do you see him? Have you ever taken the time to notice that they have pupils in their eyes? Can you look at them? Can you take them seriously? Or have their many sins disqualified them from the human race in your eyes? The concrete reality of the present kingdom of God puts all of us on our knees. We submit. We're humbled because we realize that God is working in the lives of people that we would have written off a long time ago and may already have. And at the same time, we understand that we desperately need forgiveness ourselves, and so we live in a posture of gratitude. 
The man who finds the treasure in the field does not go and sell everything he has out of compulsion. He's not weeping along the way. This is not the rich young ruler who Jesus interacts with in the book of John. This man has joy. He has found the thing for which his heart has longed for in the same way that that sex worker did in Simon's house. When we reach that point, this becomes life-changing for us. And the teaching and the practices in our community and even the Spirit is about keeping us living in this kingdom. This is the pinnacle of the whole thing. When Jesus says repent and believe, repent means change the way you think. Reconsider. There's a new kingdom. There's a new hierarchy. There are new rules. And church, I am heartbroken because I don't think most of us know those rules. I think we have taken the concepts and the structures of our culture and we've painted crosses on them and decided that they must be Christian. And Jesus has an entirely different way to be. Though it may seem extreme to you and I, when we see Jesus clearly and when we begin to live into the the real present kingdom of God, we will find that everything that gets sold in this story is a small price to pay to be united with God in Christ, and to carry the effective will of God with us wherever we go. So I'll leave you with a quote from one of my favorite teachers and authors, a guy named Dan DeHaan. You may have heard of Dan. He taught what used to be called the Metro Bible Study in Atlanta. He died tragically in a plane accident in his 30s. But in his last book, it's called The God You Can Know, he says this. I just want to leave you with this thought. All true love involves sacrifice. When God speaks to us, he might ask us to stop something that previously was not wrong to us. Do we argue about it, or do we give it up? Is he so cheap that we offer him little or nothing? Real love motivates and makes us sensitive to the person we are loving, the sex worker in Simon's house. Real love makes us full of gratitude. It gives us the joy to say, God, take it all if I get you. If I get this love, this person, this reality that I've been desperate for for decades of my life, if I get you at the end of whatever journey I'm on, the journey is worth it. The cost is not too high. You are good enough. You are real enough. My friend, when you stumble upon Jesus and you really find him, you give away whatever you have in order to be near So may Jesus do that. May Jesus reorder our lives out of unrivaled love for him. And may we live each day in the spiritual realities of God's kingdom, which is now at hand. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the fundamental life change that comes when we finally begin to grasp that you weren't playing games. These are not suggestions. This isn't a new religious system. It's not Judaism 2.0, God. It is a life lived in your kingdom. Make us those kinds of people, please. Make us servants who serve because we're just servants, not because we're trying really hard to serve in a way where people will see us, God. Make us giving in times where no one else will know. Let us let go, God, of our deep ache for entertainment and distraction and selfish ideas, and all the stuff we fill our minutes and our hours with that is not of you, God, I pray that you would not let us be people driven by guilt and shame, but that we would find freedom in you, freedom to walk away from whatever we need to to follow you. God, may we be people who follow Jesus everywhere, anytime, whatever you say. Make us, God, into your apprentices. Make us into your image. Fill us with love. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.